very excited to welcome my next guest, Andrea Subasati. How you doing? I'm good. How are you, Joe? I'm excellent. I'm I'm honestly super glad that you said yes to this because I think you have an amazing voice and you're doing great things at Rumorg. But just in case anyone is not familiar with your work, can you give us a 30-second bio? A 30-second bio? Okay, well, I'm not going to time it. Are you going to time it? I am not going to time it. If you need longer, (laughs) take longer. All right. I am currently the executive editor of Rumorg Magazine. I've had that position for, I guess it'll be two years next month. So I'm in charge of everything that goes into there. I am also a co-host of the Faculty of Horror podcast. We've been at that for six years, and I am the, like, you know, co-founder, co-host. I do all the production aspects to getting it up and out. And yeah, I guess that's currently my bio. That's currently what I'm working on. Lots of side projects that come and go, but that's plenty for my dance card right now. (laughs) Yes, I actually think you're maybe underselling it just a little bit. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about the writing. Like what is involved in executive editing Rumor Magazine? Well, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting, really, because I came at horror from an academic background. I wrote my master's thesis on zombie movies, and so I was writing on horror from this very high level, this very lofty ivory tower. And when I first started doing horror writing, it, it was still in that vein. I would look for academic calls for papers, and I would contribute chapters here and there. And then even when we started the podcast, the podcast deals with very academic concepts. I started the Black Museum with another writer, Paul Korup, back in 2012. And that was a lecture series to take high-level academic concepts applied to horror and present them in a way that was really accessible and engaging. And so that went on for many years. Now we're kind of in the process of revamping it with some new management because I am really busy. (laughs) But yeah, hopefully that can live on. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, when it came to Rumorg Magazine, I became friends with Rumorg president Rodrigo Gudino many, many years ago, and he was always very interested in what I was doing, even after he left the company, so to speak, and moved to Montreal. Whenever he was in town, we would have lunch, and he was very interested in my projects and was always encouraging me to write for Rumorg, but I struggled to write for Rumorg because I was just so used to having my academic hat on and using these high-level concepts, and you know, even my synopsis would be... I don't know. It's hard to explain. It was just Dave Alexander, the editor-in-chief at the time, would always be like, well, pitch me, pitch me, pitch me. And I'd be like, I want to talk about the Foucaultian concepts as they apply to, (laughs) like, those pitches weren't going anywhere. So it it was many years before I was able to put on a journalism hat and really kind of speak about horror in a way that's accessible and still high level without it being academic and being more journalistic-y. And then when I became editor, I had to cut my chops with regard to editing other people's work. Now I'm receiving those pictures and now I'm the one who's in charge of massaging them into a way that fits in well with the magazine and with our audience. So it's been a pretty steep learning curve. I still have a foot in the door with the academic stuff, thanks to Faculty of Horror, obviously. And yeah, I'm, I'm starting to have a really good time with it. I, I've gotten to the point where it's uh, it's less daunting and more fun. Fantastic. Yeah, it's kind of the best of both worlds, right? You still get to dip your toe into the more high-level academic, really theoretical stuff, but then you also get to expose all of these different types of films to a wider audience with Rue Morgue. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's also really interesting to have both Rue Morgue and Faculty of Horror in my life in that... Rumorg was started 21 years ago by someone else, you know, built up a body 
of a readership that I was not involved with. You know, it's changed hands a couple of times, and now I've kind of inherited it as a living, breathing thing. Whereas Faculty of Horror, you know, I was I birthed it from the ground up with one other person and a very similar vision. So I have different feelings about the two projects and my accountability and my responsibility and their collaborations in both respects, but it's very different. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you got your start in writing from an academic background, but where did the love of horror begin for you? The love of horror for me began, I mean, I think when you're a little kid and you're aware that horror exists, but you're also kind of grappling with, oh, scary stories give me nightmares and nightmares are pretty much the peak concern of my life right now, you know? I think most people have an early fascination with horror just because it's not for you. It's for the big kids and you're scared of it. And I think for the horror fan, they lean into that fear. And for the non-horror fan, they continue to lean away from it. The first big kid scary movie I allowed myself to see, I have two older sisters, five and seven years my senior. So I think maybe for some only children or for children who are the eldest of their household. Maybe they don't have it quite that close. They don't have that tantalizing material just out of reach. But my sisters watched Terminator 2 at home and I caught some peaks and it blew my mind. And I've mentioned this in interviews before and horror fans are always so ready to jump up my ass and be like, that's not a horror movie. Listen, that movie is scary as hell. And it was not only scary, but very cognitively rich. There's a lot of ideas at stake going on. The science fiction, the time travel, like, God, I've watched that movie a thousand times and I still don't fully understand it. I still don't fully think the continuity makes sense. But anyway, so yeah, that really kind of got my wheels going. But again, I didn't have a whole lot of horror movies within reach. So where I went at that point was to Stephen King and to horror literature. And so in my early teens, I chewed through everything Stephen King. Well, I guess I started with like R.L. Stein, you know, the good old gateway. I did Christopher Pike. (laughs) Christopher Pike, eh? He did uh, Fear Street was R.L. Stein, but Christopher Pike had his own kind of series. What was it called? He had a bunch of standalone adventures, and then at a certain point, he started turning single books into series. So he had Remember Me, Where the Girl Dies, but she's hanging around as a ghost. He had The Last Vampire, which is when he got into heavy Buddhism and started to talk about how eternal life was you know, very challenging and difficult. And Oh, shit. Yeah. I always thought that he was a slightly more adult version of R.L. Stein, but okay. none of his stuff has ever been developed beyond that. That's interesting. Yeah. But sorry, I interrupted you. R.L. Stein to Stephen King. No, no, King. I was asking about, yeah. R.L. <laughs> Stein to Stephen King. And then from there, I think the natural progression was to Stephen King's many movie adaptations of his work, you know, bad and good. Mm-hmm. The Shining I took to very, very strongly for myriad reasons that you can hear all about in our episode on The Shining, Faculty of Horror, June 20-something. I don't know. <laughs> You'd have to search it. But uh, but yeah, and then uh, I think from there, my journey was kind of in high school. I was exposed to the more 80s classics, you know, the bigs, the, the big slasher franchises and stuff like that. In university, I met some more cinema people and I got exposed to the more underground stuff, the more international stuff, the more indie stuff. And yeah, I would say that's where it started. It's funny how many of us cut our teeth on the franchise stuff and we think, oh, wow, it's so scary and so gritty. And then the deeper you go in the wormhole, the more you're like, oh, the international stuff and the indie stuff, like 
there's some really weird, nasty, brutal, interesting stuff kicking around. The studio fare can seem very tame by comparison. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's become a benchmark for the horror fan. Like, how much of a horror fan are you, you know? If you see somebody in a Nightmare on Elm Street t-shirt and you see someone with a, I don't know, Gates of Hell t-shirt, you're like, oh, oh. Yeah, I know what kind of horror fan you are. Exactly. Yeah, I can do without the hierarchy of fanboy or fangirling over certain types of films. I think horror fans should just be horror fans. Why can't we all get along? That would be nice. It would be. (laughs) But maybe we would have less rich discussions if we weren't made to justify or debate our positions. So Maybe. I mean, there's plenty of civilized discussions you can have about stuff like that. I just, I wish there was more of that. (laughs) Yeah, a little more civility wouldn't be a bad thing. Nope. Okay, so we're talking in advance of Women in Horror Month, and I'm wondering what does the month mean to you? Women in Horror Month began when I was kind of a tadpole in the industry. I remember like I might have started, no, I hadn't started Faculty of Horror yet, but I had been a guest on the Rue Morgue podcast, and the host had me back as a guest again for Women in Horror Month, and we were talking about the controversy like it's mind-boggling now to think that it was ever controversial but it absolutely was because this is a very you know a very protective and reactionary fan base who are just like why do we need to have women in horror month and there were some civilized discussions about does this not uh, heighten the gender disparity by drawing attention to it and there were some smart high-level conversations being had but there was also a lot of I don't want to share my pie with girls and oh, even after it got going it was just kind of like the horror journalism industry responded with top 10 lists of women directed horror movies and it's the same horror movies that are trotted out for this discussion again and again year after year so it's one mm. of those things that it's it's a great idea it, it was such a great moment but it didn't come about without bullshit and it was so disheartening to see that bullshit but less and less every year I think Yeah, and I think people have made more of a concerted effort, even if, unfortunately, sometimes the reaction is still, here's my top 10 list, or here's the five women I'm going to watch this month. Mm -hmm. I do think that people are recognizing that it's a much deeper bench than they had anticipated, and they're seeking Mm -hmm. out different types of properties than just the more traditional or the more obvious ones. I hope so. I really think that that was was the goal of the month. Yeah, I think so. So this next question, I think you're very well positioned to answer just because of your role and how many films you probably see in any given year. But as a woman, what do you think of the current state of the horror genre, the horror industry? Well, I think we're at an interesting time. I'm often asked to comment upon the state of the industry. And I like coming from an academic background, I'm kind of like, well, we'll wait and see. Ask me 10 years from now about... (laughs) 2018 horror and I will be able to kind of take a bird's eye view and look back and tell you what I think is happening what I feel like I'm seeing happening is that horror is having a very high level appreciation right now and I think it's reacting to that I think you know get out obviously was a benchmark moment in horror it blew everyone's mind it's a a very Trump era horror in that it addresses questions of racism that are right in our faces right now it 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 ticks off all those boxes in addition to being very watchable and very award friendly apparently Mm -hmm. so that's been really great to see 
I think we're going to see stuff like that. I'm also loving how horror is embracing social media and social media's prevalence in our lives and technology. I think there was a long time where horror was like, we don't know what to do with this. Like so much of people's lived experiences, you know, staring at their phone or looking at a screen, how do we address that cinematically? And we're starting to see that happen. We're starting to see that with, you know, stuff like Assassination Nation, Searching, Cam, the Unfriended movies and, it's really exciting and it's really emergent. It's really fresh. Yeah, it's nice that we have fewer films where people are on road trips and, oh, I can't get a signal on my phone. Oh, now something terrible is happening to us. That's right. And when those tropes don't fly anymore, it kind of forces people into a position of creativity. That said, I'm also seeing there's still plenty of stigma with the word horror insofar as, you know, hereditary and get out and all that. I still receive press releases about something being a thriller and it's chilling and it's spooky and it's like, why don't you just say the word? Just say the fucking word. Because then I have to watch the material anyway to decide whether or not it's appropriate for the magazine. So even now in marketing, I'm still seeing people shy away from the word horror. And why do you think that is? Almost everyone that I've spoken to has mentioned Get Out, and I think we've recognized that 2018 was arguably one of the best but also most commercially viable year for horror. Not in a long time. Like, horror has always been profitable. It's always been a moneymaker. But I feel like last year, there was a nice balance between respectability politics Mm -hmm. and commercial viability. And yet we're still getting these press releases. Like, why Why are people so gun-shy around the word? I don't know, man. I don't know if marketing execs are just, like, this aging boomer white male population who are just like, we know horror to be a naughty word, and so we're staying away from it until we die out and the next more progressive generation comes in. That's, <laughs> that's my theory. <laughs> oh, gosh. I hope they die out sooner. Yeah, me too. <laughs> So thinking about this current state that we're in, what are some films or maybe directors that you think people are sleeping on that they should be aware of? And that could be new or it could be old. I mentioned Assassination Nation. I know you've seen it. Oh, yes. Loved it. I know you liked it. I loved it. And I gave it a huge feature in the Halloween issue last year. And I was able to see it well in advance of this release, and so it's rare that I get to do that and I get to watch with bated breath. I was like, this is going to be such a thunderclap. Everyone's going to be talking about this. No one's talking about it (laughs) except us on Twitter. It is agonizing. I don't understand it. It's really frustrating to me, so I strongly urge anyone who's interested in culture and how horror reflects culture to not only check out that movie, but... (laughs) I'm not trying to plug my writing. I'm not trying to plug Rumorg, I swear to God. You but my plug interview... it. You plug, plug your work. That's what we're here for. My interview with Sam Levinson really illuminated a lot of that film's genius. And I think a lot of people who didn't resonate with that film are just, it's disjointed, there's too much going on, it's distracted, and it's like, that is the point. Mm-hmm. This director was really trying to capture the distractedness of a social media saturated existence. These kids are living where information is coming to them through all different formats, from all different directions, mostly from their phone, and it's just as valid as the real life stimuli that's happening to them in real time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought that was really fascinating. Also, I think I mentioned Cam. I thought that was a really fascinating glimpse into an emergent and yet still very underground lifestyle. 
you know, it's sex work in a sense, but it's also a viable career option. And I thought that that movie really illustrated that beautifully without having to lean too hard on, and now here's some titties because this is what you really came to see. Mm -hmm. You know, did you see that one? Yes, I saw it at Fantasia in Montreal last summer, and Mm -hmm. I really, really liked it then, and then I've grown to love it more. Particularly, I've been plugging this like crazy. April Wolf interviewed Isa Maze on Switchblade Sisters, and they were talking about Jennifer's body as well as Cam, and honestly, the pairing of those two films and the conversation between the two of them is so fascinating and enlightening. It deepened my appreciation for Cam even more. Oh, amazing. I'll have to check that out. All right. So Cam and Assassination Nation. Yeah. Very good picks. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like we sometimes also live in a bubble because when I talk about those films with people, more so Cam than Assassination Nation, but I feel like people are saying, oh, yeah, you know, I know those. I love those. And then I'm like, cool, everyone knows these films. And then I'll Mm. talk to anyone who's even a toe outside the horror community, and they're just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) That is true. That is true. But that said, mainstream horror is also having its moment. And again, that's maybe a gatekeeping benchmark between horror fans. Like The Haunting of Hill House was a really big deal last year. Celebrated across the board. A little bit of dissent within horror. Bird Box in December, humongous mm-hmm. splash. Very, very mainstream. I think that's largely thanks to Netflix. Yes. When things are really accessible, people are willing to take a chance. So yeah, I think it remains to be seen if this kind of lifts some of the horror stigma or, or what. Yeah, I'm interested to see if Netflix is going to continue to release some of their numbers as they did with Bird Box. Because mm. we don't see it typically. I mean, they don't really ever release numbers. They make proclamations and then we're meant to accept them as truth because we can't, of course, verify them. Right. But I did find it interesting that of all of their horrific films that they've been releasing over the last year, last couple of years, that's the only one that they've really heralded as a true out-of-the-box hit. And you're right, it's by far the most mainstream, accessible film that they've done. Mm-hmm. But we shall see. So, now to the main event. So February is also the month of love and Valentine's Day. Oh. And in advance of our conversation, I asked you if there was a particular film or performance that you wanted to give a little bit of love to. And I have to say, you picked probably the second or maybe third most unanticipated pick of all of the folks I've uh, chatted with. So you picked Ellen Bernstein in The Exorcist. I did, yeah. I did. It's a really interesting film to me because I think, I mean, speaking of mainstream, I, I think it might be one of the most cited films as a scary classic horror film. If you Mm -hmm. like this film, you are a horror fan. And even if you liked this film, you might not be a horror fan because it's just such a great film that it's just that film. For me, it was almost a dare when I was a little kid. Like, did you dare see this film? It was the ultimate sleepover dare film because it was so frightening. The scenes with Reagan, the stuff she was doing, the stuff she was saying, the way it was filmed, that it was really frightening. And so, you know, you accomplished that dare, you achieved it, you conquered it, and maybe you kind of left it behind. But I found it was a film that I kept returning to as I got older. And, you know, as I got older, I started seeing it through the character of Chris's eyes more and more just because I was getting older and here's this woman who is you know she's on her own I am not a parent but <laughs> if I were I would be a hard-working parent like this woman Chris and she doesn't have a religious background she's uh, 
she's a secular educated lady but in utter and total desperation you know she can't deny what's happening right before her eyes and it's something horrible and horrifying that is happening to someone that she loves very much and is responsible for so to me this film just it gets scarier and scarier the older I get (laughs) yeah I'll confess I hadn't seen it in a couple of years so I ended up re-watching it in anticipation of our conversation and you really opened my eyes up just by picking her. When I rewatched the film, I realized that I had really overlooked the role that Chris plays in this film because when I think of The Exorcist, and I'm projecting, but I'm assuming at the same time, I think a lot of people honestly think of Reagan and they think of the exorcism itself. And really, that's probably 20% of the film. Like, so much of this movie, and even, I think, up to the first hour, they don't even mention an exorcism. And, you know, Father's off there running and reenacting scenes from Rocky. Mm-hmm. And it's really Chris, as a worried working mother who's got a lot on her plate, trying to have a bit of a life, having to deal with this sick, mysterious illness that is befalling the person that she loves most in the world. And it's traumatizing to watch her go through it. It really is, especially since her her transformation, and she does indeed transform, like so does Reagan. But if you look at Chris at the beginning of the film and you look at her as she's surviving this ordeal, she transforms as well. What's happening to her is not supernatural. What's happening to her could happen to anyone. If someone we love gets really sick and we can't understand and we can't help, that helplessness, that desperation, that grief, that despair, that terror, that's far more frightening a prospect to me than being possessed by a devil. Mm-hmm. Very relatable. Hopefully not, but... (laughs) So why do you think, if I'm correct in thinking that people dismiss Chris or they forget about her, why do you think that is? Is it just that it's not as fantastical a piece of the film? Or is it that people gravitate towards the scares? I I think it's both those things. I think... uh... I think the flashiness of Reagan and the fact that the most iconic scenes, Chris is maybe not present in the room. I think that's it. Mm-hmm. I think that's it exactly. It's interesting though, because really you're meant to take your cues from her reactions. Because early on, there's a couple of key scenes where strange events begin happening. And really the camera is on Chris and Ellen Bernstein's face as she is reacting to this And sometimes it's muted horror, and sometimes she's flipping the fuck out. But she's the witness to the spider walk down the stairs, and she gets a face full of her daughter's (laughs) post-crucifix stabbing scene. (laughs) And that's horrifying. Like, those scenes are so impactful. You know, just in case you didn't understand how to process it, there's Chris, front and center. Well, that's right. And it, Chris is her mother, right? So it's the kind of thing where I, she knows her daughter better than anyone. Like, well, When Reagan comes down the stairs and pisses on the carpet and is like rude to everybody, everybody's kind of like, oh, geez, that's awkward. But when you look at Chris's face, she's, she's not angry. Her daughter is not misbehaving. She was like, something's wrong. Something's up. I don't get it. She's on her own with it. I think, you know, there's a couple of really pivotal moments where daddy's absence is conspicuous and so uh you know she's got people around her who are kind of like friends and helpers but she doesn't really have anybody helping her and she's very desperate yeah you really get the sense that she just doesn't have anyone that she can confide in she's got a housekeeper slash assistant and then she's got somebody who does repairs but 
those are really the two closest people to her. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why she ends up reaching out and connecting with, uh, I can't even remember his name. I just keep calling him the father. <laughs> uh, He's father Karras, like, the young priest? Yes, thank you. <laughs> I think that's why she connects to him is because, I mean, obviously there's the whole backstory of grief and trauma and he's working through his own issues. But really, he's the first person who's legitimately talked to her. Well, that's right. I think in the extended version that came out, uh, I can't remember when it came out, but the extended version that came out with the crab walk, it also has an additional scene of you know, Reagan being tested and a prolonged conversation between Chris and the doctors. And you, like, it's always a room of white men and they're always telling her, well, this is what it is. And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yes. She calls them out. She's like, you guys are full of shit. You have no idea what's going. Stop blowing smoke up my ass. And then she turns to the church to which she doesn't even believe. But I mean, let's not forget she's a movie star. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget how isolating that has to be. You know, people assume that her life is perfect. She's got this picture-perfect house. She's got all this money. But that all kind of contributes to her isolation and her desperation. I think what's interesting is that it doesn't help her in the end, right? Like, the movie, in a way, undercuts the celebrity artifice to say, sure, she's a big, famous movie star, and she can be on the cover of magazines. But at the end of the day... She's also a mother who's desperate to help her child, and all of that artifice doesn't end up helping her in any capacity. That's right. I think you could you could easily make the argument that the devil is real and the devil targeted somebody to torment in this movie. It was Chris. Yeah. Even by taking Reagan, you know what I mean? Reagan didn't remember the horrible shit. Chris will remember that forever. Yeah. Dark stuff. Yeah, man. <laughs> Fuck, that movie's good. So I had watched a couple of other older horror films, and by older I'm putting in quotation marks because it's like (laughs) late 70s and early 80s, and those are not that old. I've forgotten how leisurely the pacing is. Like they're taking Mm -hmm. their time to develop characters, and it just kind of made my heart ache because I miss it so much. Yeah, Yeah, that's just a gem. It's nice to have a movie that's worth the hype. You know what I mean? I feel that way about Get Out too. It's just like there is no way to overhype these films. They're just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And films that they really reward repeat viewings. There's mm-hmm. so much more to discover beyond just the simple shocks and the scares. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a fantastic pick. And thank you for bringing it back to me with fresh eyes. I really oh, appreciate that. Oh, <laughs> my pleasure. Anytime. Like you had told me that uh, you told me the movies that other people were looking at. And I was like, well, shit, what's <laughs> left? And there's plenty. There's, I mean, you can go back and look at old movies through new eyes every day and that's one of my favorite things about the work that I get to do absolutely and you've got 21 years of history of great different types of films that people should be revisiting as well yeah true that sometimes I get pitched I get pitched retrospectives more often than anything I think unless you're kind of an industry insider getting press releases maybe you don't know what's coming up apart from like the big trailer that dropped but I get pitched a lot of retrospectives and I'll be like, oh, well, we covered it four years ago in issue 156 and I'll go look at it and I'll be like, hey, somebody could come up with a completely different piece. Like, conversation never ends. Yeah, and that's what's so great about both the movies as well as the role in film criticism that something like Rue Morgue is playing, right? There's the capacity to go back and rediscover old films as well as old issues. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're kind of coming up to our 200th issue, 
Well, we're on 187 now, so it's a ways to 200, but I would really love to do just like a really meta issue, like just do an issue of Rue Morgue focused on horror journalism, and we could talk about what it is, what it was, what it became, the role of the critic. It's fascinating to me. That sounds amazing. I'm saying. Yeah. You're putting out Rue Morgue every other month, right? Every other month it comes out, yeah. Okay, so we've got a little ways to go before we'll be able to hit that milestone, but... <laughs> yeah. Something to look forward to in the future. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, Andrea, where can people follow you or get a hold of you on the internet if they want to seek you out? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm all over the place. I make myself very available. Uh, I think that's important. I think that's an important part of it is is horror is an intimate thing. And if people didn't like talking to each other about it, I would not be in the business that I am. So I am on Twitter at Necromandria. I am on Instagram at Necromandria. I am on, what else am I on? What else is there? I can get to you through the Faculty of Horror website. Absolutely. I would encourage you to check out the Faculty of Horror. Just, uh, just check it out. I don't expect everyone to love every single episode, but we do identify what we talk about in the episode title. So if you just want to dip your toe in, maybe hear us talk more about The Exorcist and The Shining and stuff like that, I can be found there. And of course, Rumorg Magazine is published bi-monthly. But yeah, you can uh, subscribe to the magazine, check out the blog. If you're interested in getting stuff with your magazine, we're partnered with Horror Pack, where you can receive the Rumorg Coffin Box. So that'll be the magazine, plus a t-shirt and some stuff. I believe the Faculty of Horror is returning to Salem for Salem Horror Fest next fall. I don't know if I'm allowed to announce that officially but uh, <laughs> Ooh, i got an exclusive there you go and then rue morgue also has frightmare in the falls happening around halloween in niagara falls ontario yeah which is a great way to connect with other fans but also a lot of people who are making some pretty cool merchandise and collectibles yeah are you gonna come back i think so yeah i had a good time i think i want to come on the the saturday and really get the full event wash over me yes excellent yeah. excellent All right. Well, thanks again for chatting with me and, uh, you know, keep on doing all the amazing work if it doesn't kill you. Thanks for having me, Joe, and likewise. (laughs) Okay. Okay.